Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure you are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to uh, come to a greater understanding of what you have revealed to us, that we might, uh, under the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, take these things and apply them to our thinking and to our lives, that our lives may glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are still in our introduction to Acts, and what I passed out this evening, as I said, Earlier, we'll go up on the Internet. Each week, I'm revising this a little bit and updating it, picking up on some of the typos. So uh, it should be, we should have this set up through these, at least page 17, out there sometime tonight or in the morning. Uh, We have gone in the past down to Roman numeral, uh, through Roman numeral 10, which is where I stopped the last time. Uh, and so tonight we're starting up with Roman numeral 11. Now, all of this information or these, these different main points are not normally gone through, I think, in some, some, some Bible studies or some classes that you take on Acts and introductory material goes, is gone through pretty quickly. But Acts is one of those, I think, battleground books. It's not in the same sense that Hebrews and James and First John are battleground because their battleground is over the free grace lordship issue. But there are other battlegrounds that are that are other battles that are fought in terms of the book of Acts. And it's because the book has a unique nature to it, being a history book. It's the only book of its type in the New Testament, and it, because it the way it uh, straddles two dispensations and presents what we're going to get into tonight, we see this transitional flow. So I think it's important to go through a number of different uh, aspects of that are related to the interpretation of Acts for background, for history, for theology, so that as we go through it, these ideas will be expanded a little more. But at the beginning, I just want to make sure that that uh, we understand these these different specifics. So Roman numeral 11 I called Acts in the flow of biblical thought. Now, if you look at the map that I have up here on the title slide, we see the, the area around the Mediterranean Sea. To the south, we have the North Africa. To the uh, east, we have the area referred to as uh, 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 Syria-Palestine. To the north, you have what is what is now modern Turkey, Greece, and then the uh, boot, um, uh, the boot of Italy. If you look at that map, you see where the focal point of the expansion of the gospel is from Jerusalem is north 
and west. And the book of Acts does not focus on what goes on south other than the, the very uh, uh, brief hint uh, related to the Ethiopian eunuch whose sal- uh, salvation occurs. And then, of course, he's going to go back to Ethiopia, take the gospel with him. We don't see Peter going east to Babylon, although based on First Peter, that is exactly what he did because Babylon had the second largest population of, of Jews in the ancient world, and he is the uh, apostle uh, to the Jews. And so he went east to Babylon, but we don't see, hear anything about that in Acts. Acts goes north and west. Why does God ignore these other areas? Why is it so important that the gospel went north and west? Why is it that God's sovereign directive will through the Apostle Paul, took the gospel north and west into Europe and not into these other places. Now, some people may say, well, it was more logical because of the uh, Roman Empire and because of the existence of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that existed for about uh, 300 years and made it possible for the gospel to expand throughout the Roman Empire uh, because uh, everyone in the empire spoke Latin because of the highways, the roads, uh, the transportation. It was uh, easy for the gospel to expand. But why couldn't God have raised up a different empire? Why did he have this empire uh, raise up in Western Europe? Previous empires expanded throughout the Middle East, for example, under the uh, under the under Alexandria, with the expansion of the Greek Empire, you not only had Greek in the West, but you also had uh, the empire moving across to Persia. They conquered Persia all the way to uh, the Hindu Kush, all the way to Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, northern India, all of what we think of as the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, all of those areas over to Egypt were all under uh, the control of the Greeks. Why didn't God send the Lord Jesus Christ during that particular era? A lot of interesting things there. And I think to understand this, we have to go back into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, we have this interesting little episode between a drunk Noah and his sons. And as a result of that, Noah gives a prophetic pronouncement that is a basically a structure of the history of the world in terms of his descendants. Now, the point I'm making here is that, as, as I've said again and again and again, unlike the way a lot of people approach the Bible in just sort of a piecemeal fashion, or we're just going to cut and paste out of this book or cut and paste out of that book, we have to look at the Bible, all 66 books, as being what they claim to be, and that is a revelation from God to us, and that they all fit together and they complement each other and they intersect so that you can't really understand one part without fitting it into the other parts that make up the whole. And at the very beginning of, of history in the book of Genesis, we have two or three events that come one right after another in the uh, unfolding of Revelation in Genesis that set the stage for the rest of human history. And without these three events, you really can't make sense 
of human history. It just becomes a, a lot of different details. You can study military history, economic history. You can study uh, political history. You can study uh, ethnic migrations, all these things, but you don't really have a solid overview that gives meaning to those individual parts. And as a result of not having that overview, it's easy for people to uh, misunderstand, misinterpret the details, and also many people will come in and take those details and will reconstruct them and fit them into different frameworks. So we have to understand this history as a divine framework. So Noah has this little episode after the flood where he plants a vineyard and he drinks of the uh, fruit of the vine and he becomes drunk and he's laying uh, uncovered in his tent. He's laying naked in his tent. And we see this episode with his three sons and their response to the fact that, that dear old dad is lying naked drunk in the tent. And the first the first picture we see is of Ham. Ham, the father of Canaan. Now, the text makes an important point to emphasize who Ham is in relation to his son. Now, to understand why the text says the father of Canaan, we have to remember that Genesis through Deuteronomy is written by Moses to give the Jews in the wilderness so that they have an understanding of who they are, why they are, and what God's purpose is for them before they go into the land. And so in Genesis, um, as they're standing there, rather in Deuteronomy, as they're standing there in, in 1406 B.C. getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, and God tells them to completely annihilate every man, woman, and child, and in some cases all of their animals, uh, it would be very uh, common for uh, one of the, for the Jews to say, well, why do we need to kill everybody? Well, it goes back to this this episode. It gives us a foreshadow of that. And so Moses says, Ham, the father of Canaan. The important part about this isn't Ham. It's Canaan because in Ham we see the foreshadowing of the uh, sexual deviancy and perversion of the Canaanites. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, rather than treating his father in respect, what he does is he laughs about it. He shows a lack of respect, and he jokes about it, and he makes the father, the father the brunt of his jokes. In contrast to Ham, Ham's attitude, we have Shem and Japheth who take a garment, and they lay it on both of their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the tent so that they are not looking at their, uh, at their shameful behavior of their father and then they cover up his nakedness, so they're showing respect and deference uh, for their father. Uh, their faces are not turned toward him. They don't see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So this is this little prophecy. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, there were the, this happened or that happened between Cain and his father, but there's uh, between Ham and his father, but there's no mention of that in the text. There's just this the the, the nuance there that this is uh, a disrespect and this is there's, there's something going on here that foreshadows the sexual perversion of, of the Canaanites, and so there's going to be a curse or a judgment statement made about Canaan, not Ham. Interesting because it's not related to all the descendants of Ham. It's just related to Canaan. 
as a precursor to the uh, contemporary Canaanites of Moses' day. Uh, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So he's going, he's being judged. He's going to be in a position where he's basically a slave of slaves to his brothers. In contrast, there is a blessing statement made to Shem and a blessing statement made to Japheth. Notice there's no blessing or curse related to the rest of the Hamites. So low man on the totem pole are the descendants of Canaan. One step up are the Hamites, which are neither blessed nor cursed. The next level up, you have the Shemites. Blessed be uh, Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Of course, that takes place uh, much later. May God enlarge Japheth. Now, that means may God make Japheth prosperous. So the focal point here, the one who gets the lion's share of the blessing is Japheth. Japheth and his descendants are going to be the focal point of God's blessing in, in history. And that is what we've seen. Japheth is the father of all of the Western European peoples. And it is why Western Europe is what it is. Western Europe, European nations have become what they are as the focal point and the water carrier for the rest of the world because they are, because of this particular blessing. So blessed, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, dwelling in the tents of Shem is a reference to the religion of the Old Testament and the New Testament and that Japheth is going to be blessed uh, by his, by association with what we would refer to today, the Judeo-Christian religion, and let Canaan be his, his servant. Now, there's a lot that is implied by this and a lot that's been worked by a man by the name of Arthur Custance who wrote a series of books. Uh, he was a sociologist. Uh, he worked, uh, I forget exactly what he worked with in medical field with the Canadian Army. And I read a lot of his works back in the late 60s and 70s. And he has one particular volume. All of this is online. You can search for Arthur Custance's name, and you can find all of his books have been uh, preserved electronically and are on the Internet. And he had one volume of the Doorway Papers. It was called Noah's Three Sons. And he, he shows all of the different uh, ways in which uh, this prophecy has manifested itself throughout all of history, how the uh, Hamitic peoples have spread out. The Hamitic peoples were the people who were primarily responsible for the Tower of Babel, which is in the next chapter, or the next, actually chapter 11, and that, that uh, the language, the, the division of languages fell mostly on the Hamites. And Hamitic peoples have the greatest spread and diversity of languages. In fact, there are some places, for example, in Papua New Guinea, where tribes will split every five years, and within ten years they can't even understand themselves anymore. The languages multiply that quip, quickly and become that diverse. And so your your your, China, your Asian peoples are Hamitic. Your most of your African peoples uh, are Hamitic. The Philistines were actually uh, Hamitic, according to Genesis. And um, and so this is the, the expansion. So where God is putting the emphasis from the very beginning is in Japheth because it's through Japheth that the world is going to be uh, enlarged via their missionary uh, endeavors in taking the gospel throughout the world. So that is why the focal point in Acts drives us uh, to 
uh, Western Europe and the and the Japhetic peoples. So it is this this little prophecy, this this uh, somewhat cryptic prophecy in Genesis nine twenty five to twenty six, especially verse twenty seven. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. That becomes a framework for understanding. Uh, all of history in this division between the Japhetic, Hamitic, and uh, Semite people. Then the next key event, of course, is in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and the division of languages. And then as a result of that division and the failure of humanity as a whole to be the vehicle through whom God will uh, communicate his word to mankind, God calls out Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, this is the next significant event. In Genesis 12, um, God says, I will make, says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. That's a command to Israel. You shall be a blessing to all the world. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. Now that's, that second phrase is really interesting. When I've taught this before, I always emphasize that cur- the first word for curse is different from the second word for curse. But in English, they use the English word curse for both. The first word for curse means to show disrespect to someone. It's, it's a light kind of, of, of uh, disrespect to treat someone lightly, to um, uh, show them uh, to not esteem them very highly. So uh, God says those who, actually that's the second word. This is a di- little different translation. Um, re- the King James reversed the two. Uh, the one who curses or treats Israel lightly, treats them with disrespect, God will curse harshly. So in the New King James, the first word for curse is the strong word for harsh judgment. And the second word is the word for treating uh, treating lightly or with disrespect. And so uh, those who just ignore Israel or treat Israel with disrespect or just slight Israel, those are the ones God will judge harshly. It doesn't take much to fall into the category of showing a little uh, disrespect. And in you or by you or through you, actually, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram becomes the fountain of blessing to the entire world. So it's going to, that, that fulfills that, he's a descendant of Shem, so that fulfills that Shemitic blessing aspect that comes out of the Noahic prophecy. And so the, Japheth will dwell within that tent, within that covering of the religion of Abraham. Now the next key passage, that puts that we have to address to see how Acts fits in the flow of biblical thought is in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 we, we read, Now it shall come to pass when all these things, and that refers to the judgments that God promised upon Israel, that if they're disobedient, he'll scatter them throughout all of the earth. He will remove them from the land that uh, he had promised to them, and he will scatter them to the ends of the earth, to all the nations on the earth. So then God promises hope. 
Now it shall come to pass when all these things, all these judgments have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have said before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. That's the key phrase there, to return, to turn back to God. This is going to be the message that we hear in the first part of Acts to the Jews is to repent. It is based on this word, to turn back to God. So, in terms of how Acts fits in, the, in biblical thought, first of all, in terms of the Noahic prophecy, the prophecy is that eventually it'll, it will be the descendants of Japheth, the European nations, those European tribes, that are going to be the focal point of the, of the blessing that takes the gospel throughout the world. That's why Acts fo- focuses on Europe. The Abrahamic promise of blessing is, is still significant because even though Israel as a nation formally, formally, former, formally rejects the gospel, there are still hundreds of thousands of, of Jews that accept Jesus as Messiah in the first century. And there's no reason for anti-Semitism. There's a distinction in the scripture between Israel and the church. When that distinction got lost by the end of the second and into the third century AD, then you had the seeds developed for what has become called in modern times replacement theology. The idea that God just forgot Israel, wiped them away, and replaced them in his plan with the church. And But that would negate the promises of both the Abrahamic promise of blessing, and the uh, Mosaic Covenant promises of a future return and a future blessing by God. So when we look at the book of Acts, we, we see how it fits within this flow of history that God has a plan and a purpose to bring about uh, a worldwide blessing through the descendants of, of Abraham. Paul's going to pick up on this in uh, both Romans and in Galatians, and we see elements of this in some of his messages in the book of Acts, that through Israel, through the rejection of the gospel by Israel, God then takes the gospel and blessing to all the nations of the world. So when we ask that question, why Acts, what's going on here, that's what's happening. Now the next thing, that the next point I have is point D, which is the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant, Psalm 89, is a meditation on the Davidic Covenant. And Second Samuel uh, chapter 7 is the uh, precise passage that deals with the uh, Davidic Covenant. Now, the reason this is important is because Jesus is identified as the son of David uh, several times in the book of Acts. And so it's important to just understand the background of this. Again, it's an unconditional covenant, just as uh, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It's a permanent covenant. It's not going to be taken away. And it's a promise that God gave uh, to the house of David. And if we look at Second Samuel chapter uh, 7, starting in about verse 9, God says to David, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now, that ne- never has happened in history, so that refers to a future time. Um, violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house that is a dynasty. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come after your body, and I will establish the kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Uh, this refers to Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So through Solomon, the kingdom is going to, going to be developed, and eventually the only one who can full that, fulfill that in terms of uh, eternality is going to be one who is eternal. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established uh, your throne shall be established forever. So the Davidic covenant is also a background. There are going to be a couple of places in Acts where the, the, the messages reflect back on these, the uh, promises of the Davidic covenant. And then the new covenant, which is stated in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 33. We've touched on this just a few times recently, but we covered it in, I covered it in detail in our Hebrew study. And this is the only passage where the uh, New Covenant is specifically identified uh, as the New Covenant. God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant is what gets instituted, goes into effect when Jesus Christ returns and establishes the kingdom. The new covenant becomes the rule of the messianic or or millennial kingdom. Now, the reason this is important to understand these covenants is because when Jesus came, he's uh, proclaiming the kingdom, and he is uh, sending out his disciples, as John the Baptist had before him, to announce the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he, he, he is rejected, he's crucified, he's put in the grave for three days, he rises, rises from the dead, then in the interim period when he is talking to his disciples and teaching them before the ascension, the main topic of, of instruction is the kingdom. If we look at the first part of, of Acts, Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> We learn that he is, uh, at the end of verse 3, he says, uh, verse 3 reads, To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's teaching about the kingdom of God. Then when we get into Acts 2, we're going to hear Peter uh, make it the, the famous sermon on the day of Pentecost where he quotes from Joel 2, which is a related to the establishment of the kingdom and a new covenant passage. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, it never mentions the new covenant in Joel 2, but 
the, the, the description of what happens at that time is identical to what's described with the New Covenant. So the new, understanding these covenants and their background in terms of God's message to Israel is critical to understand what is going to happen in the initial transition period in these, especially the first nine or ten chapters in Acts. By the time we get to chapter 10, the emphasis goes off of Israel and begins to shift uh, to the Gentiles. But in those first nine chapters, the message is still repent and the kingdom will come. The times of refreshing will come. And so all a lot of these passages that we think of and we've been sort of programmed to think of as justification passages in Acts 1 through 8, we'll find out aren't really justification passages at all. They are passages that are addressed to Israel to turn back and accept Jesus as the Messiah. So in, in a broad sense, you can say that they're justification passages, but in a, in a strict uh, interp- interpretive framework, they're not really talking about uh, getting saved in terms of phase one. They're talking more in terms about Israel turning back to God to experience the fullness of blessing that God promised with the coming of the Messiah and the establishment, uh, the establishment of the kingdom. So that, uh, that sets a very, uh, a very important background. We see this transition taking part, taking place in Acts as we see the transition between Peter and then Paul. This is the next Roman numeral. Uh, Roman, numeral, Roman numeral 12, just outlining uh, the two distinct ministries of Peter and Paul and showing that there's a parallel there. There are similarities between Paul and Peter. What God the Holy Spirit is showing us is what was what authenticated Peter in his ministry as the uh, as the representative of the of the disciples in the first part of the book of Acts, are duplicated by the Holy Spirit in the Apostle Paul in the second part of Acts, showing that Peter and Paul uh, imitated each other in terms, of, uh, in terms of the miracles that they performed, in terms of the various uh, uh, ministries that they performed, and in terms of the messages that they proclaimed. And so there is not a, a competition or a debate as it were, between Peter and Paul. But Peter is primarily the apostle to the, uh, to the Jews. But in that ministry, there is a rejection by most of the Jews of Jesus as Messiah. And so then there's a shift to the Gentiles, and God brings out a new person to be the uh, point man uh, for the ministry to the Gentiles, and that is the apostle Paul. So the book, as I point out in the first point, pretty much ignores all of the other apostles. The only two that are, are emphasized are Peter and Paul, even though you have a slight mention of, of John, you have a slight mention of James, uh, you really don't, they, they don't say anything, they don't play any kind of a, a significant role. When it comes to Peter, this is point, point B there under Roman numeral 12, Peter's the major figure in the, the first 12 chapters. Paul's introduced... At the end of, uh, I believe it's at the end of chapter uh, 7, and he, then he has um, uh, his conversion. But Peter is still the major figure in these first 12 chapters. He gives a major sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. There's a second event in Acts 3 when he, accompanied by John, uh, commands the layman to walk this major miracle. And then there's another, another sermon 
Uh, he's the, it's Peter who addresses the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. It's Peter who ex, uh, explains why Ananias and Sapphira are disciplined via the immediate sin unto death uh, by God the Holy Spirit in Acts 5. He performs many miracles. Even his shadow, those who were who needed to be healed, if they just got in his shadow, expressing faith, they would they were healed in Acts chapter nine. It's through Peter and John that the Samaritan believers are initiated into the church. It's not a separate, distinct act. The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon the Samaritan believers until Peter and John are present to show a unity between that uh, beginning and the events on the day of Pentecost. So nobody could come along later and say, well, there's a completely distinct work going on among the Samaritans. Uh, it's unified by the presence of Peter, uh, Peter and John. Uh, Peter heals the paralyzed Aeneas in Acts chapter 9. He raises Dorcas from the dead in Acts chapter 9. And then he is the one who initiates uh, taking the gospel to uh, the Cornelius. He's the first to take the gospel to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And then he goes back to Jerusalem, gives a report to the church there, and that lays the groundwork for uh, taking the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. Paul in his miracles, mirrors the events in the life of Peter. Uh, Paul also heals a cripple in chapter 14. Uh, like Peter, uh, there, he's, strange means happen. Peter, through his shadow, Paul, with his clothes. Somebody just touches the hem of his garment, and they're healed. Uh, Paul has an encounter with a sorcerer, as uh, Peter did with uh, Simon the sorcerer. Paul's also involved in the... Um, uh, restoration of the um, of, of the uh, uh, the restoration of the ministry there to to the uh, uh, Gentiles, and he through through his three missionary journeys, and he's uh, miraculously released from prison when he's imprisoned there in Philippi, in Acts chapter 16. So all of these events demonstrate the credentials of Paul as an apostle, and that he is the one who who takes the ministry from Peter. So we see this transition again. And that takes us to the next really important topic, which is Roman numeral 13, understanding dispensations and the book of Acts. So the first thing we have to address is this question, what is a dispensation? Now, I've covered most of this in a series I did on dispensations and covenants some years ago. That's, none of that's available on video, so I thought it would be good to uh, include portions of that uh, as we go into this study, but just because some of you have never gone through this or haven't gone through it with me, uh, we need to just have a brief uh, review of what dispensationalism is and what a dispensation is. You may not realize it, but dispensationalists are sort of the whipping boys in the theological community out there and even in the political community. Uh, there are many people who accused uh, President George uh, w. Bush of listening to these doom and gloom dispensationalists who who just uh, can't wait for Armageddon to happen, which is a total uh, misrepresentation of uh, of dispensationalists uh, of listening to to uh, these dispensationalists. And George W. Bush probably never heard the word dispensationalism. 
Uh, he had no clue. He, he, he kind of operated on his own little vision of, of Christianity. He comes out of a Methodist background. Uh, he is not being influenced now. Hal Lindsey, uh, I mean, excuse me, Ronald Reagan had read Hal Lindsey, but golly gee, so did um, uh, uh, David Ben Gurion. David Ben Gurion's the father of uh, uh, of Israel. When he died, there was a copy of uh, of Lay Great Planet Earth on his nightstand. Same thing with um, Nachum Begin, who uh, was prime minister at the time of Jimmy Carter, and uh, Begin met with. Uh, Anwar Sadat, Jimmy Carter went through that whole thing, establishing peace between Egypt and uh, and Israel. Begin also read Late Great Planet Earth, and so did Ronald Reagan. But they didn't run out and try to uh, make Armageddon happen, which is what uh, people who have no understanding of these issues and no recognition of truth, uh, how they try to misrepresent and distort what we believe and what dispensationalists believe. So it's important for us to just take a brief review of what dispensationalism is, and it is a theology, a way of uh, of looking at the Scriptures, uh, a, a theological system that derives from a specific, consistent, literal interpretation of the Scripture. The word dispensation isn't used that much in your more modern translations, uh, New English, uh, uh, the NIV, the uh, ESV, uh, the NET Bible. Usually they use, they translate the Greek word uh, or its equivalents with the word administration or stewardship. They don't use the word dispensation anymore. Dispensation had these same ideas, uh, but it's more of an older English word. So a dispensation, it, the, the, the root meaning of the Greek word is, is an economy or a, an period of administration. And so it looks at history as, as God administering history or the way in which God rules over history is through various administrations that are defined by him via uh, primarily through the... Um, uh, through his uh, covenants. So a dispensation, just to begin with, give you a brief target definition, a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. In other words, there are certain characteristics of each period of time that got based on what God told man, uh, how God told man to worship him, and uh, various uh, things that were part of Revelation. And even um, uh, even many covenantalists uh, and rep- those in replacement theology believe to some degree in dispensations. I mean, some have quite a few dispensations. That's not the essence of dispensationalism as, as it is defined. And so uh, anyone who is not going to the temple in Jerusalem or trying to go to the temple to Jerusalem to sacrifice, anyone who is not sacrificing a lamb on a regular basis in order to have a uh, relationship with God is to some degree a dispensation. They, re- they realize that something is different between the Old Testament way in which uh, people came to God and the way people come to God after Jesus Christ. Dispensationalists, that is, scholars within dispensationalism, have defined it in different ways. Now, dispensational theology 
Dispensational theology didn't begin to get uh, focused, did not begin to be clearly articulated until the early 19th century. And you might say the father of modern dispensational theology was a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. Uh, John Nelson Darby was uh, British. He was originally ordained in the Anglican Church, and then he left the Anglican Church and became heavily involved in a group that had already begun called the Brethren or the Plymouth Brethren. Um, and uh, he had suffered a, um, uh, a leg injury, and he had to rethink. He, during that time, he rethought his theology, and he became much more biblical as he thought through in a based on a consistent literal interpretation of scripture uh the uh, uh the teaching of scripture he influenced a number of people including uh in the 19th century came to america i think four or five times and influenced via his writings a number of uh, different people one of whom was this man uh Cy- Cyrus Ingersoll Ingersoll rather Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield, C.I. Schofield, who had been a uh, highly decorated soldier in the Confederate Army, uh, went to St. Louis after the war, became a lawyer and a drunk. Those don't necessarily go together. Uh, and then at which time he uh, heard the gospel and was saved and entered into the, uh, entered into the uh, ministry and was highly influenced by a Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis by the name of James Hall Brooks. And J- James Hall Brooks was one of the early dispensationalists. Uh, we, there's no direct connection with Darby, but there was probably some that we just haven't uncovered yet. Schofield is famous because he wrote a study Bible. It was first published about 1909 by Oxford Press, still published by Oxford Press, and very popular. And through his study Bible, people came to understand uh, dispensationalism. And he defined a dispensation as a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. So he adds this idea of a, of a specific test. Now, in my um, initial definition here, I pointed out that it's a, uh, the dispensation is distinct and identifiable. There are certain characteristics. There are certain things that God says to do. How, for example, under the Mosaic Law, specific instructions on how to worship God, uh, what kind of sacrifices to bring, uh, all of those kinds of things, dietary laws, things of that nature. And then when, uh, after Jesus dies on the cross, Peter then has a vision in Acts 10 where God lowers a tablecloth from heaven where all of these unclean animals, all of this unclean food, uh, lobsters, scallops, shrimp, crawfish, uh, bacon, pork chops, all of this are laid out on the table because all of that was uh, forbidden under the Mosaic Law. It was all unclean. And initially, uh, 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 Peter's response is, no, no, Lord, I, I don't eat any of that stuff. I'm, I keep kosher, and I don't eat anything that's prohibited in the Torah. And God says, it's all clean. And three times they went through this, and Peter got the message that what God declared to be clean was now clean. And so there was obviously a dispensation, a shift in what could be done, what God mandated in the Old Testament, and what was now legitimate and permissible 
uh, in the New Testament. So the, that's why these administrations are, are distinct. But there are tests in terms of the revelation that God gives. That's what Schofield contributed uh, to the idea. Another, um, another Brit that was highly influential in the early part of the 19th century was uh, Graham Scroggie. And he defined dispensation in terms of the Greek word here, oikonomia, which is, if you notice, that sounds like economy. It's the cognate of our English word economy. The word oikonomia bears uh, one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or property, of a state or a nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it, at any given time. Notice that he has this phrase, or any part of it. See, there's a shift that occurs in Genesis 12 with Abraham. But what if you were living, if you were a believer like Job was, was before Abraham, or maybe at the same time as Abraham, and he's living somewhere else. Well, what God is telling Abraham didn't get to Job. So how, how do we factor that in? These are differences. There, there's, for, for most of the human population during the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't have any idea what God's doing through these three guys. And they're living off in, in uh, Europe or down in Africa or over in uh, India or China. They have no idea God's called this uh, uh, wandering shepherd over in, uh, uh, over in the Middle East to be the one through whom he's going to bless all the nations on the earth. So that's really important to understand that uh, aspect of the definition he provides or any part of it at any given time. Just as a parent would govern his household in different ways, according to varying necessity, yet, uh, yet ever for one good end, so God has at different times dealt with men in different ways according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one great grand end. There are some things that are the same throughout all the dispensations. Salvation is by faith alone, and some things that change. Now, this man wrote a book called Dispensationalism. Uh, Dispensationalism Today came out in the 1960s. Charles Ryrie, at the time he was the head of the theology department at Dallas Theological Seminary, he's mostly known today by people because of the Ryrie Study Bible, uh, he was one of my professors when I was uh, at Dallas at the end of the uh, at the end of the 1970s, and that book is has been redone and now it goes by the title Dispensationalism, and it's probably the best single volume work on dispensational theology out there today. And Dr. Ryrie identified a dispensation as a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. He was always the he could cut a definition down to the smallest possible, and he, that's what he always wanted. He was Ryrie was great. We he he had uh, his doctorate from Dallas and also a doctor doctorate from the uh, University of Edinburgh. Uh, just brilliant, very soft spoken. Um, you could always just see the wheels turning, and when we, and he taught senior theology had him for two or three other courses, but also senior theology. And you would be given something to read uh, in a, uh, related to different aspects of theology. Senior theology was like a review course for all the other branches of systematic theology. And so you would have to read for class 15, 20-page uh, article written on a particular topic, the Trinity, sanctification, justification, regeneration, whatever it was for the day. And he would go down the line. Everybody had assigned seats. You had to sit in the same seat every time. And he would start where he'd left off the day before, and he would just start asking each student questions. 
the question might be, based on this particular verse, this problem in the verse, how do you handle that? Um, what would you say if someone were to ask you um, this, this question based on this verse, and you just had to be ready? You had five buyouts during the semester, and the rest of the time you were on the hot seat. And that was a lot of fun. They don't, I don't think they get anything quite as, quite as fun today. Um, so Ryrie was uh, a master at that. Now, in the, about 10 years ago, as they were putting together the uh, Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, I was asked to write the one-page uh, article describing dispensationalism, and this is how I articulated dispensation in the, the uh, Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible. A dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plans and purposes for human history. That picks up on elements from some of these different dispensations. A closely connected but not, but, uh, not interchangeable word is age. Age picks up a time factor. Dispensation itself doesn't mean time. It just means an administration. Age picks up a time factor. Uh, God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration, determined by the level of revelation he's provided up to that time in history. Now, that's important because we have to understand that there's a progress in revelation. Abraham knew more than Noah did. David knew more than Abraham. Uh, Paul knew more than David did. So uh, John knew more than uh, Paul did, in the, especially in the area of eschatology. So there's a progress in Revelation down through time until the canon, until the tan- canon was closed. And so each time, especially each time there's a covenant shift or an additional covenant, there's something new required or expected by God of a particular part of humanity. Uh, in conclusion, each administrative period is characterized by revelation that specifies responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, failure to pass the test, that happens in every dispensation, and God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. So I've tried to pick up elements, uh, the strongest elements of each of the uh, previous dispens- uh, writers, theologians, uh, to pull that together. So... That gives you an idea of what a dispensation is. A dispensationalist, though, is not simply someone who believes that, that God operates in different ways at different time periods in history. So what makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist? What is the Latin term is sine qua non, which means without which nothing. What is the key element that you've got to have that makes a person a dispensationalist as opposed to replacement theology. That's really all there is. Now, what happens today is that people want to create a boogie monster out of the Roman Catholic Church and their extreme Christian anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages and say, now, that's real replacement theology. But let me tell you, the guys down at the uh, Reformed Baptist Church uh, who are into uh, covenant theology and the guys who are Reconstructionists and Preterists, they're just as much into replacement theology as anybody else. They just try to disavow the bad side. But the issue is, if you believe that that God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament are not going to be fulfilled in the future to Israel, 
then you have replaced Israel with the church, and what the Jews are doing really doesn't matter. What's going on in Israel really doesn't matter. That's, that's what happened with John Knox Seminary, which was, uh, which is associated with the, uh, uh, the ministry of James Kennedy. He's going to be with the Lord now and knows the truth. Uh, James Kennedy at Coral Ridge, uh, ministries in, um, in Florida. Uh, uh, they, uh, they put out a letter in the early part of the 20th, uh, in early part of the 21st century, right after 9-11, because so many conservatives were focusing and, 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 uh, emphasizing the importance of the U.S. support for Israel, that they put out an open letter saying, no, 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 this is all wrong. We don't really need to support Israel. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is just going to lead us into bad foreign policy. Now, Ryrie asked the question back in 1960, what is it that makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist? And so he came up with three things that uh, he called the sine qua non of dispensationalism. The, that is, this is what makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist. These three things. A lot of people don't understand the third one. But the first one is a consistent literal interpretation applied equally to all scripture uh, against spiritualizing or allegorizing portions of the text especially in relation to prophecy, Israel, and the church. It's a consistent literal interpretation. A literal interpretation doesn't mean wooden. It means the normal, plain meaning of language. How are these words and phrases and metaphors normally used? What do they mean in normal, everyday language? So that when you look at something in Scripture and say, well, this is a figure of speech or this is a metaphor, you better be able to document how it's a metaphor, and if at all possible, by showing parallels to it in other parts of the Scripture. You can't just say, ah, it looks like a metaphor. Uh, that doesn't work. You always have to, just like a good lawyer in court, you better show foundation, and you better show parallel uh, text to document and to substantiate your position. So if Israel means Israel in the Old Testament and God said the land I'm giving you is this land bordered by the uh, river Euphrates, the river of Egypt, and, and the Mediterranean, that's your land, then you don't come along in the book of Acts and go the promised land is now heaven. So you just shifted the meaning of your terms. If Israel means Israel in Genesis and Israel means Israel in Isaiah, then Israel means Israel in Romans and Israel means Israel in Revelation. Israel, you can't go, well, Israel's Israel then, but now Israel's a church. That's replacement theology. So you have to have a consistent, literal interpretation applied equally to all, all Scripture. If you do that, it's going to lead to the second point. And the second point is that there is a consistent distinction in the Scriptures between God's plan and purposes for Israel and the physical ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's plan and purposes for the church, which is something that, that is new that comes into existence in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost in AD 33. That is the church. It is the body of Christ. It comes into effect only after the cross. It does not replace Israel. The church then will be removed from history at some point in the future and will be uh, once again, God will then finish out his plan uh, for the nation Israel. And then the third part of Ryrie's sine qua non was defining God's ultimate purpose. In covenantal theology, in covenantalism, God's purpose is salvation. The problem with that is 
that it leads covenant theology. What do you do? What do you do with the angels? That's why historically in Reformed theology, that's Calvinistic theology, there's very little was said up until the 20th century about spiritual warfare, about the angels, or about demons. You just don't find it there because they don't get saved, so they don't fit into God's plan and purposes for the earth. This was a big flaw in their theology. Another problem is, is they don't really understand the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Up until the 20th century and the pressure of the Pentecostal movement, which finally forced uh, Reformed theologians to wake up and realize, golly gee, you do have a third person mentioned all throughout the New Testament, and he does seem to have something to do with the spiritual life, but they still don't know what. Uh, I mean, I can go back to all your classic uh, covenant theologian, Reformed theologian, works on the Holy Spirit for the last 500 years, and they don't mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. They don't mention it at all because the church existed from from Adam. It didn't start in Acts 3. So if you hold the covenant theology, the way you handle the text of Acts is going to be really different, especially when it comes to Israel and the church. So what we, so in, in what Ryrie pointed out was for dispensationalists, the overriding purpose of, of history is to bring glory to God. Angels bring glory to God. Human beings bring glory to God. That's the overriding purpose. So that's the three things, literal interpretation, distinction between Israel and the church, and the purpose of man in history is, the, uh, is to glorify God. So the essence of dispensationalism then is the distinction between Israel and the church, which grows out of the consistent, plain interpretation and reflects the basic purpose of God in his dealings with man in ultimate glory. Well, that just takes us down through Roman numeral 13, and I really have a couple more things to I want to point out from the notes that you see in relationship to, uh, to Acts, and so we'll uh, come back and, and finalize that next week and then get into the last section, which deals with just some basic historical background uh, material uh, related to the book of Acts and trying to understand uh, who's who when we read in the book of Acts about the Herods. So we'll get into that next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to see that you have a plan and purpose in history, that history isn't just uh, accidental events. You have a plan and purpose for Israel, a plan and purpose for the church, and that eventually all things will come together in fruition and completion when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and fulfills the promises to Israel, and the church will take her place at his side as the bride of Christ to rule and reign with him during the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with these things that we study and help open our eyes that we may understand your word more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.